1: Hello, this is David Feingold, the host of the Future of Higher Education podcast and president of Chatham University. Um, I'm delighted to have you here with us today with Michael Horowitz, who is the founder and president of TCS Education System. Michael, it's great to reconnect with you.
0: It's wonderful to be with you, David. I'm excited for our conversation.
1: Um, To start with, could you tell us a little bit about your own educational background, where you went to school? university college choices and, and, and the start of your career. Great. Well, I'm a, uh, born
0: and raised in New York city and proud alum of, uh, Stuyvesant high school. And I went to Columbia university in New York for my undergrad, uh, two years, one year before, uh, college and junior year spent that in, in Israel. And so that that was also instrumental uh, to my development. And then graduate study, PhD in clinical psychology at Northwestern University Medical School. And that context, of course, was also critical to framing my future career.
1: Great. And, and which borough did you grow up in in New York?
0: So born in Washington Heights in Manhattan. My uh-huh. parents were both uh, immigrants. Uh, they had family that perished in the Holocaust and they came, uh, in the late forties. I was born in 1959 in Manhattan and then much of my childhood in Queens. And then of course, commuting to Stuyvesant in Manhattan and
1: then Columbia. So, so you grew up in the Heights, literally, right? In the Heights. Right. There you go. Great. And, and, and what were you up to in Israel during those two years?
0: You know, uh, I know we'll eventually get into talk about leadership. Uh, I was in a youth group, Young Judea. I think it's still going. And when I thought back about doing this podcast with you, I would say that a lot of what I learned about leadership and groups and organizations was as an ad- adolescent and early adult in that youth group, which I continued at their college level. And so part of the aspiration there uh, was for some of the some or all to eventually emigrate to Israel. I obviously didn't choose that. Mm-hmm. But I went on a year-long leadership program between high school and college that was half in Jerusalem and then half on a kibbutz that uh, Americans had started, you know, a, a number of years back. And I liked it so much. I went back for my junior year at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think most people would say one of the most formative educational experiences you can have is not just to study, but really be immersed abroad, to, to live there and, and, and to be there. And and I know being in a kibbutz, that's a really unique Israeli ex- experience. We have several family members on different kibbutz there, and even they, I know, have very different approaches to, to how they, they go realize. about it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. So, so tell us a little about the start of your career after you got your PhD. So, it was in a
0: medical center, you know. So, even though this w- was not formally in the curriculum, what what I really saw was how a medical center is set up. Uh, who's important? Who's less important? Uh, psychology was very important. At the same time, there was this feel in that context that if you're not a physician, you're not really guiding things. And the other part of it, uh, and and I lived through this wave where psychology and therapy was really important. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like it was not important because now we're gonna give medication to everybody. So once that starts, of course, only physicians can prescribe medication. So you saw that whole evolution. I started thinking a lot about the fact that there's so many applications of psychology outside a medical context. So we're critically important in healthcare, but we're critically important when you think about it in almost any setting. And I said that that's not really going to get water and nourishment in this setting in the 1960s. Uh, There was a a kind of revolution in graduate psychology education where some people said, you know, we're the only major profession that educates solely in this Ph.D. academic environment. We need a model for practitioners. Hence came the PsyD movement, the practitioner movement. In the Ph.D. world, this was really seen as we don't need this. Uh, this is not high quality. They should just go away. But I was increasingly interested in it because it was essentially psychology establishing its own house. In 1988, I continued working in, the, in medical settings, uh, first as a postdoc at Northwestern with older adults, then at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. I saw this ad for faculty at the Chicago School of Professionals psychology and one at the Illinois School. Hmm. And I applied for both. And uh, sure enough, I was turned down at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And what I gathered was, hey, you're early in your career. And this is, we want experienced people. Hmm. We're training clinicians. I was hired at the Illinois School as assistant director of clinical training. The president said to me, well, before you take the job, we want you to know that we're a for-profit. I had literally never heard of that. I didn't know there was such a thing. What does that mean? He said, oh, well, we run it more like a business. So I I thought to myself, well, I've basically been in school and only working for my whole life. And then I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he said, well, Uh, I said, what's the job? He said, well, some teaching, and then you're going to arrange for students to be placed in the field. I said, sounds great. And I spent uh, 12 years with that organization, which grew uh, to a national university. I had a great mentor eventually, uh, the subsequent president, who's now passed away, Harry O'Donnell, uh, the dean, uh, Mark Lubin. I learned a lot including how you grow an institution and start new programs and enter different geographies. And lo and behold, I'm sitting in Phoenix in 1999, and I get a call from a headhunter, which had never happened. I didn't know there were headhunters in higher ed. And she said, well, this, the Chicago School is looking for a president. I said, oh, well, that, yeah, that, I've always thought fondly of them. They turned me down. And I said, how would this work? She said, well, I'll, I'll fly out to Phoenix. You pick a restaurant and you tell me your story. Like, <laughs>
1: sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and from that, presumably you w- went into the search process and were, were, were chosen to lead the institution. That was quite
0: interesting because the interview was quite It was kind of a
1: psychology
0: intake. Tell me your story. And, at that time, uh, my mentor, Harry O'Donnell, had retired from ASPP, and that institution was on the cusp of becoming the for-profit university, Argosy University, that happened after my time. I I, I was not entirely comfortable with what I... By then, I knew what, what it meant to work in a for-profit and, and quote, run it like a business. Uh, plus, I didn't have... Uh, great confidence in what I saw ahead, And so she told me, you know, the Chicago school uh, has already three finalists. They've closed the search, but I really think they should talk to you. Uh, It was, it was incredible. And she somehow prevailed on this board member, George Mitchell, who's still a trustee and a founding TCS trustee. She said, George, I know, I know you have your finalists you got to talk to this guy. Uh, At first he was, Hey, we have a process. It's closed. I went, I interviewed with the search committee and apparently he told the search consultant, that's our guy.
1: Great. And so, so tell us about the Chicago school. It was a nonprofit as opposed to, right. Um, But but what, what, what was the conditions like when you arrived and what were, what were your sort of that first year of figuring out the plan and where, where you wanted to take things?
0: So the Chicago School in in 1999, 2000 was one enrollment cycle from closing, uh, just as we're seeing <laughs> tens, if not hundreds of colleges and universities today. And in short, why was this? When it started in 1979, it was the nonprofit break off from the Illinois School. It was part of a revolution in psychology education. The demand from the public was incredible. Yeah, this is great. Uh, have a PsyD. Uh, The Chicago School had done an excellent job uh, educating experienced adults, people with master's degrees, a diverse workforce, women, underserved populations. Well, by 2000, the model was so successful, this was no longer unique. So you, you're in in Pennsylvania. I think by 2000 there were multiple of these programs. In '79, you would have had to come to Chicago. In 2000, this was becoming the prevailing model, and I I continue to observe this. the 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 fundamental flaw was turning inward, you know, and not being aware. I think in Chicago alone, when I came, we probably were looking at six seven. Local competitors. Whereas at one time it was two, and the Chicago school could say, We're the good guys, we're not for profit. Well, now there were five more or so not for profit. So the assessment was, We can't continue as a single program institution. I knew about starting new programs, and we have to be aware of the larger context we're working in. So that was the condition. No debt but no assets other than the old furniture and computers and not, not very many dollars in the bank. So it was really, it forced me into a mode of, I have my plan A to grow and evolve this institution. I spent 18 months talking to the prospective merger partners, uh, which would have been quite easy because the single program was APA accredited. The school had a good reputation. It would have been the easiest thing in the world uh, to go to an institution that didn't have this program. And we had probably three lined up uh, that would have done that.
1: And I'm guessing many of the competitors that you were dealing with were, were like that. They were they were multi-program institutions of which this was just one that you were dealing with. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Because what a number of
0: institutions uh, comes to mind is uh, Roosevelt University here in town. I believe that was their first doctoral program. So- that made sense for an institution that was very comfortable with working adults and let's advance to the doctorate, but through practice, not through the traditional PhD mode.
1: And and given you know what we'll talk about with the TCS model, obviously you're a big believer. I love the notion of, of radical cooperation. What what was it when you were looking at those things? Because it sounds like it was a pretty uh, you know, resource constrained environment that made you decide Going it ourselves and adding new programs makes more sense than joining a larger institution.
0: I I was very cognizant of joining another university meant the end of the Chicago School. So if that needed to happen, okay. But I believed in the notion of an independent school of professional psychology. Again, I think back to my time at the medical school, I thought psychology had much to offer. Uh, That wasn't going to happen in a merger because they would say, this is great. We got a D with 200 students and the rest of it, we don't really care or we have that already. And I was gung-ho about creating a large institution on this basis. It didn't take away from my observation that higher ed, really, I think much of society can do better together. When I was at Columbia University, they were proud to offer the first undergraduate course uh, by a psychoanalyst from their medical school. Could you get credit in the psychology department? No. Uh, as <laughs> right. a freshman, they encouraged students to take a course in human development taught by psychologists. Could you get credit in the psychology department? No. So uh, early on, I said, this is really kind of strange. I didn't have the full understanding of it. And the same at Northwestern. I did my PhD with someone from the psychology department, uh, my my doctoral dissertation, yeah. but he was not part of the medical school. It, it was a lot of rigmarole. And I, I thought this was one university. It, right. it, was, it was too complicated. So I didn't observe a lot of radical cooperating even internally. Uh, and then it dawned on me years later that... Not only should you pursue this internally, but this can
1: be affected across institutions. Great. And tell us about about the growth journey. So you obviously had a, a really successful decade leading the Chicago School. How were you able to to grow it both programmatically, geographically?
0: I had ideas about new programs. Uh, one, we started with organizational psychology. The next year, we added. Forensic. Uh, the first one was, if this works, we're on an upward path to success. If it doesn't, that that's the end of it. Yeah. So it was high stakes. We said if we get six students in organizational psychology masters, will stay open. We got 15. Uh, forensic psychology, we had a board chair with a marketing uh, business. He said, You know, I know this is not an academic perspective, but this is a moment where you see all these TV shows and interest. He said, I I think this one's going to go. We got 40 students into that one. The next year, a faculty member from clinical came to me and said, I have a new idea for a program. It's called Applied Behavior Analysis. I had literally not heard of that discipline. And I I said to myself, we're going to do this because now – internally, people are excited about growth and new programs. I think it's gone on to be one of the biggest programs in my time and certainly today. So the the fire, you know, I think success leads to success. Uh, There are people that get excited. So it was that programmatic growth. Um, And uh, the board chair, his, his name, he's, He's still alive. Richard Grunston, he was with with us for many years. He kind of encouraged this perspective of you can't just copy success because then everyone would be successful. He had some really nice basic thoughts that were actually very powerful. So there was always the encouragement of think differently. Uh, What can we do? Our first marketing campaign when I came that, uh, his firm donated to us, he said, I see all these, uh, you know, ads of kids with mortar boards. It all looks the same. Like what his team that had never worked in higher ed said, describe clinical psychology. And they said, what if we run a campaign where we take pictures of, of the hands of, uh, People in your institution because it's so diverse and it's so connected, and that and we're like great, uh, and that was very mm-hmm. <laughs> successful. So I think it was that out of the box uh, thinking that kept us fresh. What's new? What do we see on the horizon? And what what I what I realized after a few years, uh, we're growing really well. I don't know if we'd passed a thousand at that point. I used to think you know, we got to hit 500, we got to hit a 1,000. Now the conventional wisdom is you need 10,000 to survive in higher ed. Um, I said, well, the the students are ultimately coming from seven states. There's 50 states inquiring, but only seven show up. And I'd learned uh, from another great colleague and mentor, Alan Calvin, emeritus president at, at Palo Alto University. He said, for these big Ticket thoughts. It's good to have a task force and call it the chairman and president's task force because you'll get buy in and input across the institution. So we had our first one in 2007 on scope and mission. And that led to uh, the conclusion that if we want to get students from outside the Midwest, we have to go outside. And the log- we said, okay, East Coast and West Coast campus. Uh, we looked into the regulatory environment for both. California seemed more achievable. Um, my thought was at that point, you can pile up all the statistics. It's, it's either San Francisco or LA, and it's probably LA. That proved out to be uh, a, a good move. And I think people thought we were kind of crazy like who does this you're the chicago school of professional psychology are you going to change your name there to la no cuz we think we've evolved an approach to education and just as you hear of chicago from ufc right yeah we want have that reputation so we went. To, so and you, the real, you
1: all were the Milton Friedman of psychology. You, yeah, I don't know uh, if I agree uh, with
0: his economics, <laughs> right? But absolutely, uh, I was. I was proud of the approach, and we found a great leader internally, also an immigrant. President Michelle Nealon. She's been president for the last eleven years. I think she had literally never set foot in California. Uh, but she said she wanted to do this. She'd be, right. you know. I think you you need to look for those type of people. That I I, I I'm not going to be so careful and cautious that I'm too afraid to do something big. And it was when we scouted real estate. The realtor said, "Well, why don't we put you by LAX in an office park? Because uh, we're not sure about downtown LA." I said, "Our whole identity is." urban, underserved populations, access to training sites. We went into downtown LA. It's it's only gotten bigger and better. And it ultimately led us to be able to move the accreditation uh, for the Chicago school to WASC, which turned out to be another uh, turn in the road that was critically important to the Chicago school. And... To the creation of
1: TCS, right? So you you mentioned that you know that that first task force and the decision to really expand geographically—that was a big one for the school, even with the growth you'd had. And yet, it was not much longer after that that you made the decision to create uh, TCS and to split. The, the sort of the central shared service from the Chicago Graduate School. So can you talk about sort of that decision and how that came about relative to uh, the geographic expansion of the Chicago School?
0: Well, I, I, I would say by 2008-9, you know, I was securing my identity as a president of a university. And so I was less immersed in the day-to-day of psychology only, and what's going on in higher ed. And I I saw, first of all, I saw that when you show up to a, a state meeting of nonprofit higher ed presidents, and I, I don't think this is different anywhere, I mean, you basically get solidarity around lobbying for public funds. And what I saw increasingly was there's a lot of subjects that come up in terms of cooperation. But at the end of the day, in Illinois, it's called MAP funding. You know, this is how much money the state will... That's what that was about. And everyone would say, let's share programs and let's share resources. No one would do it. And the bigger institutions wouldn't even send the president. So I said, okay, well, this is not going to happen here. At the same time, I'm seeing all these smaller institutions really stressed. Because when I... Joined the Illinois school. We kept track of students on index cards, and we taught with chalkboards. And now the technology, the regulation is overwhelming, and and stu- the the small institutions have no capability there. So, as I that that was the germ of that thinking, and I said, okay, well this task force thing worked once. <laughs> Let's let's do it again uh, because the other question was, we'd already said East Coast is coming. We we landed that plane in 2010 in Washington D.C. Another great outcome. And then after I stepped down, the Chicago School has continued to expand with success geographically. We plugged in online. We didn't even know that's what it was exactly in 2006, but we said, you know, we're we're a non-traditional school by The standards of 1980. (laughs) But here in 2006, we're hearing this stuff about online and non-traditional. And so that's been a big success for the Chicago School and our other institutions. So the question then is, does the Chicago School change again and become, in a sense, a multidisciplinary university? Or uh, do we try and Make a run at sort of this unprecedented idea of a true nonprofit higher ed system that can embrace institutions with different geographies and different focus and still be a true system.
1: And, and to to that point of creating the, a true nonprofit higher ed system. Um, How did you and the task force come up with that? You mentioned what you didn't see. So you were going to these meetings and there's a lot of talk about lobbying, but not a whole lot of cooperation happening. Were there other models you saw, either public or private, other sectors that were sort of an inspiration for how you wanted to create this model?
0: If I go back in time to around 2002 or 2001, not quite sure, I got a call out of the blue from someone dialing the phone on behalf of Jerry Lee, the chancellor of National University. And uh, they said, oh, you know, Chancellor Lee is, he may have been President Lee. And I I think another real innovator in higher ed, he said, uh, Lee is starting a nonprofit system. He'd be happy to have you and another team member fly out. To San Diego and and meet them, and I went there, uh, and obviously we didn't do anything with him at the time. But his proposition was, uh, we we'll, that we'll, we'd like the Chicago School to join our system. I didn't, uh, it di- it didn't capture me at the moment, but I never forgot that idea, uh, and and I tried in later years to connect with him without. Uh, success. I don't know if he, he didn't like the idea of other people embracing what uh, arguably was his idea. May, maybe he got it from somewhere. I know he was a transformational president prior to national at Gallaudet. I don't think their system, uh, to create the, the contrast of what my understanding was, you had to have a governance tie-in. Or the thing wasn't going to work. Because then then you're back to 40 college presidents showing up with no commitment. So unless it's formalized, the cooperation won't happen. My understanding, it may have changed at the time, was that they were driving this infrastructure out of national university and that they were using one board, which arguably is simpler. Mm -hmm. But then you're the board sits in La Jolla or wherever, you know, and they're the board for whoever joins. And I thought by then I really did embrace community engagement. It was, that's the other secret sauce in the Chicago school. You launch programs by understanding what communities want. So if I go all the way back for all the new programs, it always started with what would this community say they needed? Not what do we, the academic people, so much less Ivory Tower, you know, for 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 organizational, we interviewed business people and did got input. For forensic, we talked to people in the criminal justice system. And on and the 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 faculty member that launched ABA said, you know, I'm a clinician in this space. There's a high need for this. So I said, well yeah it's going to be very complicated but boards of trustees by then 9 years into it i saw the power that a board could bring well how do we leverage 2 or 3 or 5 or 6 boards and still tie it together that's proven to be absolutely a success today we have in the neighborhood of 70 board members across tcs the colleges you know have a maximum of 15 but in 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 strong ways, it's still a trustee community that's proud to be working together first and foremost for their college, uh, secondly, with this idea of how do we how do we benefit together? Can you say a
1: little more about the uh, creation of the TCS system, how you came up with the the two tier model? Um, And and how you sought in terms of sort of formalizing the partnership that would allow you to add other institutions in besides the Chicago School and what's done centrally?
0: I came at it, uh, I would say, from an academic perspective. So my thought was the power of specific institutions resides in their unique community, their specific approach to education. Uh, that also happens to meld with how the regulatory world looks at it. You know, we want colleges controlling their academics, but I think philosophically it makes sense. The problems that small colleges were having were not, you know, we don't know how to teach, we can't find faculty, but getting consumed with this growing need in all these non-academic places. So what I said to myself philosophically If we can share everything that's non-student facing, that should intuitively power up the academic side, the connection between a college and its community. And again, going back to you want a board supporting that locally, because if you're Pacific Oaks College and children's school that's been around for decades in Pasadena, who's going to be more aware and give more support than the fans and alumni in Pasadena doesn't mean that boards can't benefit from people outside, but you want that locus of support. So that was the thought we had. Um, a really creative uh, outside council, uh, Dave Faguli, that had worked in public, higher ed, he'd worked in private and nonprofit and for profit, so. He had been very curious about, well, there's all these public systems, there's for-profit, quote-unquote, how do we set this up to meet all these various requirements of governance, of accreditation, turns out, of the IRS, because we wanted to be 100% percent nonprofit. So he brought to us the construct of a supporting organization that's, that's both a defining term, because it does give meaning to what TCS, which stands for the Community Solution, is. And it's a formal IRS designation. And it means your nonprofit exists to support other nonprofits in the space you have defined. And we were very blessed with WASC, uh, because when we took this elsewhere in the regulatory world, there just was not I think there's much more openness today. At the time, I think they were busy with for-profits collapsing and things blowing up, and they had no interest in anything non-conventional. wasp was, I, I I couldn't believe it. You know, I first reached out to Ralph Wolf, another visionary leader. He was president of Wasp. He's like, all right, we'll come into the office. Uh, they had two... Executive Vice Presidents, Terry Cannon, who is now the president of Minerva, which I think has been yeah. part of your podcast world, and Richard Wynn. I mean, remarkable people. They were. They, they said, yeah, we're seeing some of these same things. Let's come in. I, I was surprised they even gave us some donuts and coffee because uh, it was not what I was used to from an accreditation standpoint, so let's map this out. Let's look at what we require. Tell us about this, uh, IRS thing. And we, we, we mapped out something that they said, yeah, we, we, we have a variety of institutions within WASP that some are connected to religious orders and some are connected to healthcare systems and a few are for-profit, and many are public and they're not. So, uh, that, that was actually amazing. Uh, and, you know, in life, a, a lot of it is luck. You got, you got to work to create your own luck. But I was fortunate to encounter a variety of people. I think what I brought to it is I'm incessantly curious about the context and how this all works. So when, when one creditor said, oh, this doesn't work for us, I wanted to know why, and it seemed to me again, if you if you have literally fifty or more public systems, there must be a way to construct this on a private nonprofit basis. But that that's the 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 community focus was my thought to how do we keep uh, what the accreditor would call independent boards, yet create a system board that provides some oversight and forward motion uh, for the entire organization.
1: And, and I just wanted to, to wind up this one. You, you mentioned Pacific Oaks. My understanding is they were the first other entity you added to the TCS system. Um, when you were doing this, because obviously this was a lot of expense and effort to split an entity that was working well and growing in the Chicago school. Did you already have them in mind as a potential partner or did you work out the whole model, do the split and then go looking for your first partner to try it with? We, we
0: had nobody in mind and you're absolutely correct. Uh, or, or we had everybody in mind at that point. And we literally did create the system office Uh, And the Chicago School became the single institution, the founding institution of TCS Education System for 2009-10. I was president of both. Uh, And so it could have ended with that, where we created the system, a lot of legal and regulatory work and... Uh, we physically separated in downtown Chicago, the group of employees that we thought made sense, and maybe nobody would have showed up. Uh, so Pacific Oaks fit the bill as very rooted in a community, somewhat specific in terms of discipline and focus, though at that point they were decades old. Not, they were not a single discipline institution. And I read, I believe, in Inside Higher Ed that Pacific Oaks College announces its closing. Uh, they Their roots are in early childhood education. My wife is an early childhood psychologist who'd been on the faculty of Erickson Institute. And I went to her, I said, isn't this an institution that you thought highly of? And she said, oh yeah, we used... Uh, material that their faculty produced and videos. And they, they were in a consortium with us and two other, uh, Wheelock, which is part of the interesting yes. history of consolidation, and Bank Street in New York. So I said, well, this is pretty interesting then. I called the president and I described what we had launched. And she said, uh, no, we're, we're going to close. And we're only interested in institutions that can help us teach out. So I went back to my team. We, we've we been talking a lot to this lawyer, Dave Faguli, at the time. He said, you know, this, it really doesn't add up because when you look at their accreditation record, a year ago they were very positively accredited. There was no hint of trouble. He, he said, I, I think we should see if through our network we can find some board members. Again, it's really... Gr- It was literally dialing people or people who knew people. And we found a handful uh, from a board of, let's say, over 20, maybe five that said, yeah, we don't understand this either. It seems very slapdash. (laughs) And
1: a a year ago, we were hearing everything was fine. So I'm curious because... You mentioned their reputation and educational quality, a good brand. But particularly if you've spent all this to build a new model, it seems to me there'd be two criteria there that would scare you off going with this partner. One is obviously there are financial difficulties; they say they're closing. And second, your counterpart doesn't want to do it, right? At least the pre- so so those seemed like two pretty tough ones for the very first deal, right? You're absolutely right.
0: And maybe chalk that up to youthful exuberance. <laughs> uh, I, also, I'm someone I, I I never take for granted what's on the surface. So if someone tells me last year we were fine, this year things are so bad we have to close, I'm thinking, hmm, I, I think I'd like to see those financials. Right. And I'd like to understand what happened because – On the face of it, it's also implausible.
1: Yeah. How can that be? Right.
0: Well, sure enough, when we got in there, yeah, we, we found problems. But what we also saw was they had expanded almost double through remote sites, which arguably further supports the strength. Like, oh, not only are you in Pasadena, you have online. It's not a lot. And you have remote sites, so obviously what what you teach is of int- interest around California. Well, the, the president had concluded that the ability to control these sites, I never worked with her directly, was so beyond them that she just announced they were closing and therefore declared um, deficit in the millions. But that deficit in the millions was based on having half your students at remote sites. I further saw there's an endowment, and some of it's restricted, but some of it isn't, and there's the the college exists in Pasadena at two physical locations, and one of them looks like a really valuable historic building that has really become decrepit from lack of care. So I think it was lifting up the hood and saying, this thing is not on fire. It's got some issues that we know how to address. I'll maybe end with this uh, conclusion that I've come to see over and over. It's always at the board level as well. So we found the five or so that were really tuned in And then we found, well, most of them quit, which kind of opened. Somewhere along the way, they asked her to leave. There was someone in from the registry already as the academic lead. He was the interim president. So that was cleared. And most of the board quit. So at that point, we're working with an interim whose job is to secure the future and five people who are saying, just like the Chicago school. They were talking to local California institutions and maybe that's the play. We just merge in, we become a campus. And some of them were, but we have a great legacy. So yeah, let's hear about this thing.
1: Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for this. uh, Really looking forward to continuing the discussion um, and, and appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today.
0: I am as well. Thank you.